Student loan repayments have officially resumed after being frozen following the outbreak of the COVID pandemic. With millions across the country feeling the weight of this crushing debt burden again, what will it take to win relief? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for our regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarek, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content several days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. So Professor Wolf, student loan repayments officially resuming now after uh, having been frozen for several years. The deadline for repayments was extended numerous times. There was a whole political drama that was ultimately resolved in a highly unjust fashion in the Supreme Court around student debt relief. All of that transpired and now here are debtors in this position where they have over well, well over a trillion dollars in debt. And the government is saying it's time to start paying that back again. Yeah, it's an extraordinary moment in American history for two reasons. Number one, we haven't seen this kind of a coordinated campaign, literally by millions of students, to get relief from the debts that have accumulated because they wanted to get an education. And on the other hand, it's historic because it is such a rough, harsh decision by the Supreme Court and by many of the political, I'll give them the respect they don't really deserve, leaders of our society who either don't want to give any relief to people who borrowed money to go to school or want to give them a little so that they hopefully go quietly home again and don't bother anybody. Republicans want to give them, in general, nothing, and Democrats want to give them, in general, a little bit. And they think that's a political conversation they ought to have, and which they do have. Meanwhile, the notion that we have a fundamental problem and injustice and self-destructive policy is not admitted and therefore not discussed. What do I mean? Well, let's be clear. There are two kinds of borrowing that go on in the world. One kind, and this is, economics has taught this for decades, one kind of borrowing in the end pays for itself. Why? 
because the money borrowed is used to expand the output of wealth, the creation of wealth, the production of wealth. And so the argument goes, yes, borrowing is a bit of a burden on society, but it pays for itself because it increases the wealth in the society, which allows you to pay back the lender with interest and still be ahead because you've used the money, the borrowed money, productively. Student lending is that kind of lending. Why? Because the whole point and purpose of student lending is to allow a person, typically a young person, to go out and get an education and thereby become, yep, more productive, develop more skills, get more training, get opportunity under technically developed supervision to improve your skills, to become a more thoughtful person, a person better able to reason, better able to think creatively and critically about the problems we face. And so the presumption has always been that student loans are the kind of loans that pay for themselves in the fact that the society experiencing student lending will produce more than it would have in the absence of having lent money and then the absence of the training and education those students got. Well, the other kind of lending is understood not to be productive. If you borrow money in order, for example, to decorate your house, that's not considered productive. It's an enjoyment, it's a pleasure, and that's fine, but it's not a, a borrowing that increases the wealth. And so what it basically does is it gives X dollars from the lender to the borrower, and then the borrower has to repay the loan plus interest, so when the dust clears, when the transaction is over, wealth has moved from the borrower to the lender. Now, the lender may not care whether the loan is productive or not because the lender gets their money back and their interest payment. But from the point of view of society as a whole, it matters a great deal whether the lending is productive and leads to more wealth being produced, and in that sense pays for itself, versus it's the kind of borrowing that is just a net shift of wealth from borrowers to lenders because no extra wealth is produced. On that ground, societies have for thousands of years restricted some kinds of borrowing and encouraged others, namely encouraged productive borrowing and discouraged unproductive borrowing. But modern capitalism, like we have here in the United States, is so dominated by the financial sectors of our economy, the bankers, anybody who lends as a basic part of their business, those folks, they don't want to have any restriction on lending. Anybody who they can get a loan to who will repay the loan and pay them interest, they want them all there. They want to be able to go to anybody and say, there's so many people that want to borrow money, 
so many businesses that want to borrow money that we can raise our interest rates and charge them more as they compete for loans. And so they've been successful in elevating their interest in the lending of money, which is how they earn their income, that they have overwhelmed the social interest, the interest of all of us, that the lending we do be productive by and large rather than unproductive. It is therefore just another example of how in a private capitalist system, you constantly put the private interests of profiteers ahead of the social interest of the community as a whole. And here's then what can happen. Over time, if those who want to borrow money unproductively have their way, and if they become richer and richer, which they have, they can siphon money that might otherwise have been lent to productive borrowers and take it for themselves. Then we cut down on the economic growth we need to pander to the wealthy and to the money lenders who want to profit that way. And that is one of the many sad things about this student loan. By making students pay it back, you're going to eat into their incomes. You're going to eat into their ability to buy a car, to buy a home, to put their own children, if they've dared have any, into public or private education. 20 different ways this is going to hurt economic growth because you're denying funds. Why? Because a student who has to pay back will not be able to borrow for other reasons. They're too big a risk. Lenders won't give it to them. Why else? Because we'll be persuading a generation of young people not to choose to go to college because borrowing to do so is too costly, too burdensome, too risky in terms of the debt you'll carry when you finish your education. So we're in effect dissuading young people from going into the universities and becoming more productive. Not that I want to use this argument, but I will just to drive it home. In countries that are currently outcompeting the United States, and I'm thinking especially of the People's Republic of China, but there are others. They are doing the opposite. They are making education cheaper so that students don't have to borrow. They're making it easier and more likely for young people to get education and to become more productive. We're doing the opposite, not only by raising the price of education beyond what people can pay and forcing them to borrow and now forcing them to repay the loans they cannot, in fact, repay. We're doing all of that, and that's a way of shooting yourself in the foot. And when perfectly smart people, like Americans are, are doing something so obviously self-destructive then you have to wonder whether things have really come to a bad situation politically and in the way people think about life. And that's a much more serious problem for the United States 
than the even the amounts of money and their significant that are being played around with in this struggle over student debt. And Professor Wolf, let's just talk too about the the status of higher education or education more generally as a commodity under capitalism. You mentioned how other countries are investing more in education, not less like the United States. Well, there are also many countries where education is considered a basic fundamental right that all people are entitled to. And the idea that you would have to pay anything for it, let alone get into crushing amounts of debt, would be considered outrageous. And in fact, it, it is outrageous. You know, Higher education in the United States, it's never been a guaranteed right, but it used to be much, much cheaper than it is now. And then the price skyrocketed in recent decades. Walk us through a little bit of that history, if you would, how higher education has actually become such a major moneymaker in this society. Great. Uh, And let me do it. And let me, for the interest of transparency, tell you, you know, that I went to public elementary school and public high school here in the United States, but that my education was private. I went to Harvard and Stanford and Yale universities, all of which are extremely expensive and are private. Those are also quite old universities, been around a long time. And the history becomes relevant here. Until mostly the Second World War, Higher education was a luxury. It was afforded overwhelmingly by the richest people in the United States. It's in fact the way the rich people made sure that their own families would be the ones that stayed the rich ones because only rich people could afford to go to school. They would then come out with degrees. The degrees would then give them a boost into the best jobs around. And in that way, wealth was passed from one generation to another. We didn't have equal opportunity. We talked about it all the time, but we didn't have it. Because if you come from a rich family, your chances of going to, affording a rich university were obviously unequal compared to a poor person who had no money, whose family had no money, and who couldn't dream. And that's why we didn't have very many colleges and universities. The only public ones were the ones who serviced agriculture because the farmers needed universities to help them deal with crop failure, with pests, with diseases, and so on. So we had the so-called state university, but they mostly serviced the farming sector, which over the last couple centuries has become tiny in this country. We don't have very many people involved in agriculture. So interestingly, it was after the Great Depression, when it was shown that the government could bail out a collapsed capitalist system by providing people with things they never had imagined before, a social security program. That only started in the depths of the 1930s depression. All Americans were told the government will now give you a check when you're 65 or 67 every month for the rest of your life. Yes, you have to contribute to that, but we guarantee it to you 
whether you contributed more or less, an amazing support for people. Then we had the first minimum wage, an amazing support for people. Then we had unemployment compensation at the federal level, a support for people we had never seen before. And then the government hired 15 million people in the 1930s and gave them a job when the private sector, private capitalists, couldn't or wouldn't do it. When people in America learned what a government could do for people, it whetted their appetite. So when the Great Depression passed at the end of World War II, a tremendous demand went up from the American people. We want college education for our children. We don't want that reserved to the rich so that the best jobs are reserved to the rich people who've graduated from the few institutions that rich people support. We want higher education provided to everyone, not just to the farming communities in this country. So after World War II, roughly in the period from 1945 to 1955 to 59, those years, we produced the major state universities, public, that we now have in this country. And let me be clear in case you're wondering about the numbers. Three quarters of the college and university students in the United States go to public higher education, not private. And the public is tens of thousands of dollars per year cheaper than the high-priced private schools. In other words, they support higher education. But the rich never wanted that because the way you support freer or cheaper higher education is you use taxes to pay part of the costs. Let me give you an example of a country that hasn't done away with that, Germany. If you go to Germany today and you want to attend a college or a university, right now as I'm speaking, the tuition charged to you will be zero, nothing. It's free. No fees, no hidden fees, nothing. You do have to pay your room and board, which you would have had to do anyway. But the education is free. And the Germans are so confident and proud of this and what it has done for them as they became the most powerful economy in Europe, they make that free education available to anyone, whether you're a German citizen or not. There are tens of thousands of Americans in Germany right now there because their higher education will not require them to borrow like it would here in the United States. And Germany is far from the only country in Europe to do this. But the Republicans and the rich didn't want to keep subsidizing education for the mass of people. So they cut the taxes of the rich so that they wouldn't have to pay so much. And with less tax money coming in from corporations and the rich, politicians in one state after another took the same steps. Less government money to subsidize the university, and the only way the university could then continue to function was to raise the prices to the students. 
and the only way the students could pay the rising prices was to borrow, and hence we have this problem. It is outrageous. Education is something that makes the whole society work better. Yeah, it produces more wealth, but it also makes for a richer life for the people, a better quality of life when you are aware of the arts and the sciences and can enjoy understanding them, reading about them, encountering them in your life. It's a deprivation of people not to give them the education they need and want. You don't see Harvard and Yale and Stanford, my alma maters, cutting back on education. Not at all. Rich people want their children to have every chance in life, including a better education than other people can get. So they're happy to diminish, to deteriorate higher education that's public. It makes what they have kept for themselves all the more valuable. It's ugly, but that's what happens when you make education too expensive for the people's incomes that you pay them. The same corporate leaders who have taken the steps to cut public higher education and make it more expensive, they're the same ones who lend the students the money to pay for the higher education. They fund the educational fees they pay to the Harvards and Yales by squeezing interest and payment back from public school students. It's the same old rich get richer and the rest of us have a harder time. Making the students pay the crazy prices here for higher education, then making them borrow to get the education, then making them pay back the debts and the high interest rate, higher than the rest of the interest rates in our society, which is what is our fact charged to students, this is not only discriminatory against them, but it is shooting ourselves in the foot. It's diminishing the quality, the education, the skills our people have. It is a bad policy whose only gainers are the very rich at the top. And think about it, the only winners are the ones who need it least. Professor Wolf, I, I want to ask you in our last few minutes here about the Supreme Court. You know, student loan repayments resuming in October, officially back on after having been frozen following the COVID pandemic. The amount that borrowers have to pay back, the debt burden that people are dealing with, is significantly higher because of the actions of the Supreme Court. There was, through executive action, a partial debt relief implemented by the Biden administration. This was not total debt relief, which you could certainly make the argument the administration has the legal authority to do and has been the longstanding demand of the education rights movement, the anti-student debt movement. 
But nonetheless, there was this partial student debt relief program that the Biden administration implemented. It was challenged by right-wing attorneys general, state attorneys general. And then the Supreme Court ruled that it was illegal. They struck it down, and now people have to repay the full amount, the full debt burden. It really says something about the system of government in the United States that an obviously popular policy, extremely popular policy like student debt relief, can be overturned by an unelected group of millionaire judges. I mean, this is really an incredible system of government that shows how this is rigged in the interests of the rich and against the interests of workers. Yeah, and I think it shows the problem of a system. Look, every economic system has been and should be judged as follows. Do you make it possible? Do you make it easy for people to meet their needs for food, clothing, shelter, education, medical care, and the other basics of life. If you're using a market system, that means you have to give people enough income and you have to set the prices so that they get the income from the job to pay the prices for the food, clothing, shelter, and education and medical care that they need. We don't do that. That's the fundamental critique of the way U.S. capitalism works. We don't give young people, or for that matter, any people, enough money to buy a home, so they have to borrow with a mortgage. We don't give them enough to buy an automobile, so we have to give them an auto loan to get a car. We don't provide mass public transportation in most of the country on a regular and quality basis, so we have to lead them into borrowing to have that private car. You know, we struggled in America to have free public education from kindergarten through the 12th grade. There's nothing written in any important book I've ever encountered that says the public free education we give to people through high school should not be available to them to go on to education beyond high school. If people need it, if they want it, if it makes them more productive, and we have all the proof we need that that's the case, then it's a failure of the system to prevent people from getting the education they want, the education that will make the society a better place, and that they can afford. You're not giving them enough money, or if you are, you're pricing them out of being able to afford the university education unless they go into crazy debt, which is a problem for the society in 10 different ways that we're now going to see in the next few weeks. It's a dysfunctional economic system that creates all these problems. And of course, then you can't be surprised that the representatives of this dysfunctional system, such as the Supreme Court, keeps it all going because they are the beneficiaries at the top. They're the people, you know, Amy Coney Bryant there, you know, from Notre Dame, that's a private university, religious on top of it, in a position to judge what's going on on the question of rich and poor, like student loans, or for that matter, private versus religious education. It's in a strange society 
that puts into the positions of power, like they put into the positions of the well-heeled university, the richest people in the community. It's a system that keeps the rich rich and the rest of us having conversations like this one. We're going to have to leave it right there. We were joined by Professor Richard Wolf. He is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books. The latest is The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.